This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Please be seated. Each year during the Easter season, we make our way through selections from the book of Acts. It's one of the few times of the year that we look into the New Testament's longest book, and that's a shame. It could be argued that apart from some of the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles is the most important of the New Testament's books. It just doesn't get the lectionary love that the other books, like those from Paul and even the mysterious Hebrews, get in our tradition. Now, normally I would encourage you all to go home and read it in its entirety, but I know that's unlikely. Did I mention it's long? And it's confusing. And there are some dry bits. Now, you may or may not include today's reading from Peter among those dry bits. Your mileage will vary. But it also has moments of unparalleled charm, like the Pentecost scene and tongues like a fire, which we'll encounter in a few weeks, or Paul's dramatic conversion. My personal favorite is Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, literally in the middle of nowhere, and his surprise baptism in the pool of water. There's Stephen's martyrdom, and Simon Magus's attempt to buy his way to the Holy Spirit. There is so much at work in this easily overlooked book, and it's often oversimplified as a history of the early church. I myself have stood up here and distorted the meaning of Pentecost by trying to simplify it into the birthday of the church. Not incorrect, mind you, just missing the point. Pentecost and the book of Acts as a whole are, not, are so much more than just a history lesson. My favorite theologian, Willie James Jennings, has written a remarkable commentary on the book of Acts that I find myself returning to again and again. He approaches the text from a black liberation theology perspective. And importantly, he characterizes the central theme of Acts as a kind of revolution, a new beginning, a new way of being faithful that doesn't eclipse the Jewish tradition, but in fact dramatically expands it explodes it, if you will, so its impact touches each and every available thing, ourselves included. Acts is a revolution, and God, the Holy Spirit, is the source of that revolution. Now, as I've told you before, I am a big Broadway musical fan, and yeah, I'm not sorry about it. Thinking of the books of Acts, the, the book of Acts as the experience of revolution among the faithful, made me think of the musical Hamilton, probably the most groundbreaking musical in the past 30 years. And it features another revolution, the American one, and turns a dry history into some pretty awesome tunes. So maybe the Book of Acts needs its own Hamilton makeover, with Lin-Manuel Miranda as Peter. Imagine him in today's scene spitting out a few bars from Joel, or maybe the Psalms then maybe we'd understand how Acts is so much more than history. Hey, it worked for the Amer American Revolution, so don't throw away your shot. Some of you will get that. All of you will. Willie James Jennings talks about the irrevocability of Acts. 
Following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is irrevocably in the world in a new way. Jennings says, quote, In Acts, Luke follows God on the ground, working in and moving through the daily realities of struggle, of blood and pain, of suffering and longing, end quote. Central to God's ground game is the Holy Spirit, irrevocably present in each and every facet of our existence, including today. But there's a catch. You know, there's always a catch, right? The Holy Spirit is especially present in the midst of our discomfort. The times when we're outside of our comfort zone and really want nothing to do more than to do than to return to the familiar. Only the familiar isn't so familiar anymore. The book of Acts is filled with uncomfortable moments. Moments that make us go, hmm. In this morning's reading, near the start of Peter's first sermon, he suggests that God was in on the crucifixion. He opens with, you that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus' death was part of God's plan all along? kind of father plans his son's death and death on a cross at that according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God it's question. it makes you wonder it makes you uncomfortable and that's the kind of thing that constantly happens in the book of Acts Holy Spirit makes unexpected things happen makes us all a little uncomfortable Stephen's final words before his martyrdom aren't words of retribution get them in fact he says Lord do not hold this sin against him Surprising, uncomfortable. When Jesus first appears to the disciples, they ask, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replies, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Again, not the answer they want. Uncomfortable. Jennings describes the essential tension between the believers and Acts as between what he calls diaspora thinking, and empire thinking. Now we could spend the rest of this morning breaking these down, and I'd be happy for a conversation. But sort of think of it in the, in the following way. It's the tension between reacting to the threat of extinction, diaspora, versus becoming intoxicated by the prospect of power, empire. The apostles, believers, we ourselves spend much of our existence kind of bouncing between these polar extremes. What someone thinks or does or says may represent some kind of dire existential threat to our existence, we think. That's diaspora. Be it through the news or on Facebook or in the halls of some of the state houses. It all feels like an attack. That's diaspora thinking. And empire thinking especially takes place when we, we've gotten a little bit of power. We might push it further to permanently install our advantage, the kind of thing that's playing out in state houses and on school boards across the country, on all sides of the matter. You see, here's the thing. 
the irrevocable pattern brought to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't live in either diaspora or empire thinking. It's in the uncomfortable middle where Holy Spirit does her work, does her work on us, changing us, urging us to step into the uncomfortable middle and then keeping us there. We'll see it again and again throughout Acts this Easter season. Uncomfortable things, things best avoided here at the pulpit. In a few Sundays, we'll have the infamous socialist gospel in Acts when we're told that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they would sell their possessions, goods, and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. That's always an awkward lesson in our capitalist society. You see, it's part of the pattern we're being called to do, to step in the uncomfortable, to live in the uncomfortable. In a few minutes, we'll have this year's first baptism. Now, a baptism would hardly seem an occasion to step in the uncomfortable middle, but it's precisely what we'll be doing. We'll recite our baptismal covenant, and it contains, as you look at it, some pretty uncomfortable language. Will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? Are you uncomfortable? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, not just the ones you like, loving your neighbor as yourself? you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? Again, makes us uncomfortable. Our answer to each one of these uncomfortable questions is not a definitive, heck yeah, but a more cautious, I will with God's help. You see, we know we can't do it on our own, but we'll do our best. A baptism is a sacrament of us stepping into the uncomfortable middle life and death. Now, I think many of you received, and we've passed out uh, the additional insert placed in today's worship bulletin. If you didn't get it, I'm going to read through it anyway. Uh, it's a poem by a young prophet who may not even know that he's a prophet. His name's Otis Green. He's 10 years old. Uh, and uh, Otis put it together in preparation for today's March for Peace that I mentioned earlier. It was sent to me a few weeks ago by John Phillips, and from the very outset, it, it haunts me and continues to in the most wonderful of ways. It's titled, War, O oh War. War, O oh War, why do you kill the poor? War, O oh War, why do you kill the poor? War, O oh War, why is there so much gore? War, O oh War, why are you so violent? War, oh war, why do countries hate each other? War, oh war, why do countries hate each other? War, oh war, why not hug each other? I mean, it's, it's deceptively simple in its repetition. It doesn't have punctuation, but resolves in the handout with a giant question mark to the right of the poem. And there's a heart that Otis drew that hovers above it all, half the red of love and half yellow with spikes protruding, as if it too were at war with itself. And this comes from a 10-year-old. And what's most powerful, I find, about Otis's question is that it's directed to all wars, 
not just the ones we don't like. There's not a hint of justified war in this poem. There's no room for the conflict in Ukraine or Sudan or Israel or India or the hundreds of other places where war seems a suitable means to an end. And that makes us uncomfortable. See, this morning we have a baptism, and then we have a prophetic, passionate call for peace from a 10-year-old. They are, I believe, definitive proof of good in the world, good that I believed is destined to win. But it's not going to be easy. See, we have work to do. Easter is more than a day. Easter is more than a season. Easter is a state of mind. Easter is when we go together into the difficult places of our existence, into the discomfort and the awkwardness. We go out of our comfort zone, and we stay there, denying ourselves the urge to retreat into what we thought was familiar but isn't any longer. In the presence of the risen Christ, in the enduring presence of God, the Holy Spirit, nothing is familiar. All has changed. and We acknowledge that Every week when we say, Alleluia, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. There's a lot to be done. Now let's get to work.